Okay, so I'd like to always say, and I really think it's true, I mean, Worcester's a ski town. We have a very busy, small ski area close to us, 25 minutes from downtown Worcester in Wachusa Mountain Ski Area. Everybody in Worcester either skis or someone in their family skis. And we also have, um, you know, five miles from downtown Worcester uh, Ski Ward, which is incredibly busy all the time. Every every high school kid takes lessons there. So that's like a feeder area to Wachusett, which is a feeder area to Vermont, New Hampshire. Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester, talking New England skiing today with a guy that knows it as well as anyone. First, your reminder to please subscribe to the free Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com. You can also follow along with the storm on Instagram or Twitter at Stormski Journal. Before we get to the interview, I want to tell you about my sponsor, Mountain Gazette. Founded in 1966, Mountain Gazette is a large format biannual print title celebrating mountain culture. If you're familiar with the traditional Mountain Gazette, you are going to be shocked when you see the new format. It is an absolute monster, 16 and a half inches by 10 and three quarters inches. What has not changed is the incredible wide ranging writing and show stopping photography. I'll tell you what I mean. Issue 196, Shipping As I Speak, features a huge gallery titled The Last Days of Skiing in Afghanistan. Mountain Gazette connected with a photographer who captured what may be the last shots of skiing before the Taliban took over. This is the most powerful piece the magazine has done to date. But the range here is huge. Daniel Arnold, New York's most renowned street photographer, will roll out a gallery that conveys his impression of autumn in New York City. Do not miss this. You need to subscribe today to reserve your copy at mountaingazette.com. Enter code GOHIRE-10, all one word, for 10% off subscriptions. That's a new code. Go higher dash 10. That will ensure that you get that story and everything else in issue 196. Use code East Coast, all one word, for 10% off everything else, including vintage magazine covers, which make great art for your home office or living room. Mountain Gazette. When in doubt, go higher. Episode 64, Sean Sutner, snow sports columnist for the Worcester Telegram and Gazette and Telegram.com. You all know ski journalism has changed a lot over the past couple decades. We've lost a lot, including skiing and powder magazines, two staples of my past. Another thing we've lost a lot of is local ski columnists. Reporters embedded in their communities, locked in with the local owners and local ski cultures, writing about them with insight, perspective, and, when warranted, skepticism. Luckily, some remain. One of the best local ski writers in the Northeast and probably in America, is Sean Sutner, who's been running this beat for going on two decades from his headquarters in Worcester, Massachusetts. He skis more than most of us, and he knows this scene better than any of us ever could. This is a long one, so I'll get right into it. Let's go. My guest today has been the snow sports columnist for the Worcester Telegram and Gazette and Telegram.com for 17 years. Telegram.com is the largest online news source for Worcester, the second largest city in New England. He was the founder and co-coach of the undefeated Worcester Public High School Ski Race team, which won the Massachusetts State Championship in 2014. He is also the news director for information management 
in the independent editorial unit at Tech Target, a tech media company. Sean Sutner is my guest. Sean, so good to have you on the show. Uh, happy to be here, Stuart. So how bad did I mess up the pronunciation of Worcester? Oh, I'd say about an eight. On, all right, so it's all right. Let's. Uh, it's Worcester. Like, What's that Worcester sauce without the without the sauce? Okay, all right. I, I mean, if I if I did get it right, it it would probably look like I'm trying too hard. So so I I think I'm okay with it. I think I'm okay with an eight. Massachusetts, everybody knows has a lot of weird town pronunciations. Like Quincy <laughs> is not Quincy. And Worcester, not Worcester, and it's it's uh, pretty anachronistic. It, it, so, so you're a you're a mass guy, born and raised, right? Nope, grew up in uh, Jersey. First skied at uh, Everly, and then Camp Cod Mountain, okay. and then Vernon Valley, and then the Vernon Valley Great Gorge. When did you move up to New England? I uh, went to college. At, it was in nineteen in the seventies. I went to college at Colby Colby College in Waterville, Maine. Uh, I had a season pass at Sugarloaf. And uh, pretty much been in New England the entire time, except for a year in Washington. So, so what kept you in New England? I, I, I've got to think skiing. Yeah? Yeah. I mean, I, I just, I like it here. I, I was, I was, uh, I, I was done with the density of New York City. And I know you get out easy, but it's, for me, it was harder to get out of there to, to get to the mountains. And um, I just, I love being close to the coast and the mountains. Here in uh, in Central Mass. So, so what what had you settling in Massachusetts rather than up in New Hampshire or Vermont or Maine, where you're right by the skiing? Well, it was my newspaper job. Um, I had I was a junior reporter at the Washington Post for a year and a half. Um, I had worked at a couple of dailies up here. No, I worked at one daily in Connecticut and then a weekly. Um, and I got this job at the Washington Post. And then the, at that time, the Worcester Telegram and Gazette, my old alma mater newspaper, was expanding in, in those days. And I got a job there. I said, great, I'll take this job because I can ski tons and have proximity to Western Mass, Vermont, New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. So when you said you lived for a year in Washington, I thought Washington State. But you're saying D.C. Yeah, for a year and a half, I worked for the Washington Post uh, on the district weekly section. I was, mm-hmm. a, I was a, it was a junior reporter job. I got a lot of bylines. And then uh, my first, you know, bigger newspaper job, and I ended up staying at the Telegram Gazette for 22 years. Now, 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 DC is there's a lot of opportunities there for a journalist, but that is no place for a skier. Sean. Absolutely not. No, <laughs> your options are whitetail, uh, snowshoe, and Colorado. Yeah, I, I have a, a listener that I correspond with quite a bit. His name is Jonathan Kamian, and he lives down not not quite down that way. I think he's in uh, around Philadelphia, and he he calls it he calls the Mid Atlantic Mash for it's an acronym for Mid Atlantic Ski Hell. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's really a, a lost region. I mean, it's better skiing if you go south. Yeah, yeah. You know, I I really I don't want to be unfair to it because I I know there's some big mountains down there and and there's a reason that Vale's there, for example, and Altera's there with snowshoe. Like obviously there's a passionate ski culture down there and I don't want to belittle that. However, it, it's it's I from my understanding, it's uh you don't often get great conditions and when you do the crowds are are pretty insane. So they have actually pretty good vertical. Well Sugar Mountain though is open now and last year they were the first to open in in the uh, northeast. No, in the east, and and this year too. So there, I think that's a pretty good place. They send racers up here for uh, Eastern race championships and stuff. And yeah, that's not a bad place. 
Yeah, no, I got to get down to the Southeast so I can appreciate it a little bit more. But all right, let's let's talk about your columns. So you ended up in uh, in Massachusetts in Worcester, and and you've been doing this column for for quite a number of years now. So tell us about it. How long have you done it? When does it run? What do you focus on? Well, it's either sixteen or seventeen years. I can't remember. Um, it feels like I've been doing it forever. Uh, it's I focus. You know, I have a pretty strong regional focus. You know, Central Mass. You know, Boston. In in other words, I like to, I try to populate my my columns as much as possible with regional people from from here. I mean, they may be a ski bum in Utah. They may be working in the ski industry in Sun Valley or anywhere in the country. And I'll do, I, I will profile them or talk about what they're doing. And I've had recurring people from here, like guys on the U.S. ski team or pro snowboarders who started here. So I'll, I'll, I'll follow them over the years. Um, but, uh, you know, I'll do people in the ski industry in Vermont, but then I'll do just people around our region here. It's a pretty big region, Central Mass. It goes from New Hampshire to Rhode Island and from, um, you know, just the whole center part of the state. Uh, I'll just do stories on people doing weird and cool things in snow sports. And it's not just skiing. It, I, I also cover snowboarding, anything that in, it involves uh, sliding on snow. And, and believe it or not, that actually includes some snowmobile. I've covered a little bit of oh, that. Nice. And uh, but, you know, rarely, but sometimes it's just weird things that involves sliding on snow. And that does not include uh, pointedly uh, snowshoeing. <laughs> does not include snowshoeing? No, well, you're not cover snowshoeing. It's not. I think it's an activity, not a sport. <laughs> so you got a snowshoeing beef. All right. All right. That's an interesting omission. Uh, the reason we're we're meeting right now, Sean, is because your column starts every year on Thanksgiving week. So, so talk about how often you do it and, and, and how long it goes for. Well, I read it every week from Thanksgiving till the beginning of April. It's, uh, you know, I, I, my dad, my self-imposed deadline is Tuesday night. It runs online on Wednesday afternoons at telegram.com and also occasionally other, uh, newspaper websites that are owned by Gannett uh, company, you know, in like in Providence, Rhode Island, Quincy, Mass, the Cape, New Bedford, uh, Metro West, uh, Boston, um, and it runs in the old, what's you know in the old print newspaper on Thursday, and I just do it every week. And uh, my claim to fame for me is I've never missed a column in sixteen or seventeen years. I mean, I've written it you know like the day after surgery, ACL surgery, um, stuff like that, or if I'm on a on a far trip somewhere, I'll file a story with you know with whatever local angle I can dredge up. What's your what's your furthest abroad that you published from? For for this column, uh, Saint Anton, Austria. Wow. Um, so that that was really fun. Um, and then and then last year I filed one from Crystal Mountain, Washington, uh, where my brother works. Oh, nice. Um, yeah. And then you know I filed I filed multiple times from Utah, and Colorado, and Wyoming, Jackson Hole. What What was the closest you ever came to missing one? Ooh. Okay, well, I had a pretty bad accident. I I, I busted my shoulder. Uh, it required full-on shoulder reconstruction um, two years ago, two winters ago. Mm. And I sustained, like, I, I fell early morning. I was skinning uphill, one of my, one of my passions. And I uh, was, uh, I, I needed, like, 10 stitches in my head. It was, like, one of those weird mornings where I didn't wear a helmet. And I was bleeding. I went to I went to the ER, got stitched up. Um, my shoulder was useless. 
I was done skiing for the season and I came home and I was like holding something in my head and interviewing Nick Krause from the U S ski team. <laughs> and I asked him like, Nick, do you have any techniques for getting blood out of your gloves? <laughs> and he said, well, you just try to get it you know, off any way you can. So, so what was the, what was the accident? Was it going uphill or going downhill? Going downhill uh, on, on a, it was a low speed flat. I, I didn't secure my, my toe piece. Ah, uh, and which is kind of a common thing with technical bindings. And uh, I was just trying to make a turn and I didn't know that the ski wasn't attached to my foot and just slammed uh, the body uphill. Ouch. Yeah. So I just didn't know when it was coming. You know, you know, you ski a lot. And when you ski aggressively, I mean, you can, you can get out of a lot of tumbles by you're ready for it. You're in the ready stance, you know, your hands are forward and, you can roll, you can do this or that, but I just was totally unprepared. I didn't know. Next thing I knew, I was just hitting the, the uphill side. And were you early morning skinning? It was like 6 a.m., yeah. Okay, so was anyone around? Were the groomers around? Uh, <laughs> no, no. I, I I saw a couple of my friends on the way up who said, you all right? And my, my first thought was, I just want to get out of here. Yeah. And I would go take care of myself, so um, – no, uh, no groomers on that hill. And I probably don't want to say where it happened. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so did you drive yourself to the hospital? I did. Okay. And so so this was, you said you fall on a Tuesday. Was this on a Tuesday? Y- yes. Oh, God. It was on Tuesday morning, yeah. And I hadn't written my column. And I had to basically type it like one hand. Oh, jeez. So, so what, did you just get it in right on time and then pass out for the next week? For the next for the next day, yeah, like Wednesday, I pretty much took off. No, it, I, it's so impressive, Sean, because I, you know, obviously I have this little newsletter I've been doing for two years, and I've I've never really been able to get into a cadence. Like I, I've, it's consistent, and I try to do two posts a week. In the summer, I slow down a little bit, um, but but I found at first if I tried to do this on Tuesday and and this column on Friday. I, I just have a really hard time sticking to that. So I'm very impressed that you've done that for 17, 16 years, whatever it is. Well, I, I, occasionally it's bled into Wednesday morning. It's a self-imposed deadline. But the thing is, like coming from the news, my newspaper background, I spent more than 25 years in newspapers. Um, like deadlines, I like deadlines. I wouldn't do anything without deadlines. So I, I, I like having that deadline. Yeah, it's it, that kind of discipline is is so valuable to develop. and And I think that that's what what I'm kind of losing doing this on my own is just there's there's no one really checking me but myself. Well, you have the rolling deadlines. I mean, I have those in my day job as an editor yeah. and, and writer for the tech media company, uh, Tech Target. Um, we have kind of rolling deadlines a lot, and those are tough. You know. Yeah. Yeah. So so this column, Sean, this is actually an institution at the paper. So this isn't something you invented. So talk about this column and how far it goes back. Well, I'm. I think it goes back about 50 years, and I'm only the third person to write it. Um, the I believe the originator of this column as a, as a steady gig was a guy named Bill Clue, who's, I think, 90 now, and he's a part-time copy editor at the uh, Catholic Free Press that covers the Diocese of Worcester. And he's a avid skier and outdoorsman, and he had it for 20-plus years, and then Roger Leo, the late Roger Leo, uh, who was my friend uh, and my boss at times uh, at the paper as an editor, he held it for maybe another 20 years. 
uh, in the 90, maybe late 80s to early 2000s, not exactly sure. And then um, Roger left the column um, at some point and I kind of just applied for it. I think there was a few other people wanting to do it and I got it. I was a, I was a full-time reporter at the Telegram Gazette then, a news reporter. And there was, a, there was kind of a, like they, they didn't really want to have someone who was on staff doing it because just for pay reasons, but Roger had been grandfathered in. And uh, so I somehow I got it anyway, even though I was on staff. And so they just paid me on the side as a freelance, you know, separate um, for that, uh, in addition to my uh, regular salary. So you're, you're a rare breed here, Sean. I think that if you go back 20 years, 25 years, there were probably a lot of folks doing what you're doing. In other words, writing a local snow sports column for a newspaper or publication or however you want to frame it that's focused on the local community. And, and there's just not that many of those anymore. I mean, regionally in New England, in the Northeast, I can only think of a handful really that have that as a dedicated beat. What, what are we losing here when we don't have people locally on the ground who know these local operators who are reporting on this? Well, I guess you're losing kind of independence or like a third party verification, you know, verification of what's really going on. Because, you know, otherwise, you know, like everybody in the world these days is producing their own content. And that includes huge companies, that includes skiers. Skiers have their own media operations, right? They produce text, uh, video, photos, social media, right? And so they're telling their narrative the way they want to, um, which, you know, I'm not impugning bad uh, motiv motivations to them, but they want to control their own narrative. And not having local uh, voices doesn't, uh, there's no check on them, a reality check. So, so why, why has your column endured in Worcester? Okay, so I like to always say, and I really think it's true, I mean, Worcester's a ski town. It's uh, we're the second biggest city in New England, which, of course, New England's a region of small cities. But, yes, we're bigger than Providence and bigger than Hartford, although our metro area is a little um, smaller because it's a, it's a city that's surrounded by a lot of rural areas to the north and, and west. And we have, we have a very busy small ski area close to us, 25 minutes from downtown Worcester, in Wachusett Mountain Ski Area, I think you're you're talking to them next week. Um, mm -hmm. They have they were basically the pioneer nationwide in volume discounting, um, and they grew from a T-bar operation. Now they have three high-speed quads. They have they're open from 9 a.m. to 10 p.m. seven days a week. They have every you know every inch is lit, groomed, and has snow making snow on it. Um, it's populated by a constant. You know different shifts you get the you know retired people in the morning and then the the avid skiers then you have the, the school crowd and then you have the night race league and freestyle programs so anyway it's everybody in worcester either skis or someone in their family skis and we also have um you know five miles from downtown worcester uh, ski ward in the suburb of shrewsbury which is incredibly busy all the time every every high school kid takes lessons there is um, high school, uh, massive high school race program there that, you know, my team, my son's team participated in. People come from Boston. So that's like a feeder area to Wachusett, which is a feeder area to Vermont, New Hampshire. 
So uh, we have, and we also have a, a ski shop here, Strands Ski Shop, which is just, it's been open for 50 plus years, run by two twin uh, brothers whose father was a Norwegian uh, ski jumper immigrant to the U.S. And it just, people come from New York City to get fit with strolls, boots here. It's just wow. the classic old, great ski shop. And then, um, so, and then, you know, like every couple of towns, there's a ski shop. So it's the whole infrastructure is here. Um, and so it's, you know, and, and for many years, uh, Wachusett's radio and TV advertising was ubiquitous. And they have a jingle that people just can't get out of their head. It's that bad or good uh, called Wah Wah Wachusett. And so people <laughs> around here grew up with it like it's in their head, even if they don't ski. <laughs> Do they still run those commercials? Well, Radio is definitely, I just, I was talking to them about this the other day. Radio is definitely uh, a tiny fraction of what it used to be for them, radio advertising, and obviously print too, although they still do advertise in both mediums. But um, they, they use that jingle on videos and, and stuff like that. It's just too, it just, it has a life of its own. They can't get rid of it. <laughs> so uh, talk about the column a little bit more, Sean. The, the, the first installment is coming out this week. What are you writing about, and uh, and, how, and how did you pick, and how did you focus on the first topic for the year? Well, I don't know. I just sometimes I'm tempted to pick a person, you know, one person, and try to see the ski season, the upcoming ski season through their eyes, which I, I do that when I'm sometimes when I'm writing from a ski area. But I don't know. I usually try to do a like. I usually focus on Wachusett and Ward and the local scene, and um, you know what's new, what's changed. Um, then I just riff on a couple of things. Like I skied at Killington a couple of weeks ago. So I'll talk a little bit about that early season skiing at Killington. I'll also advance the World Cup races at uh, Killington uh, this coming weekend, which I'm going to uh, for the first time. I always turn up my nose at that saying, I, oh, I'd rather ski this that weekend. But this, but this year I'm psyched to see it. And um, what else do I write? Sometimes I just do a few sort of like motivational, like, getting stoked for skiing kind of thing. Yeah. What else do you have in mind for, for columns for the season? All right. Well, uh, the week before Christmas, I'll be in North Conway. So I'll write about, you know, Anatash, Wildcat. Uh, I do have an interview scheduled coming up with uh, the Wildcat, the Anatash general manager. Uh, North Conway is a big destination for Central Mass people, uh, even though it's far, farther away from here a little bit than Southern, Southern Vermont. Um, I've got a couple of hot young snowboarders I'm going to profile coming out of the Wachusett Park scene. Um, I want to do uh, uh, something on the Yagoons, which is this creative snowboarding collective out of the only remaining ski area in Rhode Island called Yagu Valley. Awesome. They have a they have a documentary film about them coming out like any day now. Uh, then what was I? Uh, oh, I, I may do a story this year on the best bars in in uh, Northeast ski country, which I tended not to cover or operate that much, but it's time. <laughs> Why is now the time? It's just it, there's there's so many good bars, um, <laughs> like like the Black Line Tavern in uh, Magic has experienced a huge renaissance, and it's probably like the the biggest, most crowded bar in, in, in New England ski country. Um, it's amazing. 
Yeah, yeah. J- Jeff's uh, Jeff's done an amazing job with Magic. We'll talk about Magic in a little bit. What's the uh, real quick before we move on to skiing? What, what's the column called, and where do people find it? It's called Snow Sports. Uh, it's in. Uh, you can find it on Telegram.com uh, or the Worcester Telegram Gazette. And um, I'm not sure what the free number of clicks are or, uh, when you have to subscribe. I think you can get a look at it. Um, I, I do distribute it on, on you know, Instagram, Facebook, uh, Twitter. So it's called uh, Sean Suckner's Snow Sports. How do people find you on your socials? Uh, Twitter, I'm at S. Suckner. Uh, same for Instagram. And Facebook, I've got an open account. Just plug me in. Spell Sean the right way, S-H-A-U-N. So let's just talk about paywalls for a minute, because you it's really interesting that you've been a journalist for several decades now, Sean, because you've had a front row seat to the transition from analog to digital, and it has been a rough, rough ride. And I think that what's happened as the internet has risen is people got really used to not having to pay for content. And I'm struggling this with, with this myself, is, is I've been doing this free newsletter for so long, when do I turn on some kind of paywall because I'm not going to do it for free forever, right? Because who can do, who can work for free? It's just not the way that our economy is set up. So just talk about that transition and and hitting the paywall and, and why journalists need to get paid for their work, for good work. Well, I definitely lived through the whole uh, transition. I remember at the Telegram because that we, we kind of went online first about maybe 10, 12 years ago where... If you had a breaking news story, we would put up on the website first, wouldn't wait until the next day. Um, but, you know, historically, I think I'm not alone in thinking that, you know, newspapers or news organizations, because now newspapers almost a, a, an archaic term, but, you know, news organizations made a really historic blunder by not charging for the content, really for what it was worth at the time, you know, relying mostly on on advertising, display advertising and classifieds. That was back in the days, the heyday of newspapers in the 70s and 80s when, you know, the big department stores were downtown in all these cities and charging, you know, paying enormous rates. Newspapers had a, a you know, monopoly on, on readership. There was no, no internet, uh, no local TV in most places. And so um, maybe a little bit of radio. So, so they, so newspapers got historically like eight to 10% of their revenue from subscriptions, but 90% from advertising. And when the advertising market imploded with the, with the ascent of, uh, of Craigslist and, and Facebook and the internet, that just, that just went away. It didn't go away, you know, gradually it went away pretty much overnight um, in the mid two thousands. And so, I really uh, now paywalls is one discussion and charging for content is another. I think. I mean, you know, you have the model you're using, Substack, where you know you can pay a five dollar fee for a lot of really good writers, five dollars a month, and you get tremendous content. So some, um, but you know, at my old paper, which I still write the column for, there's it, it swung back and forth between paywall, no paywall, kind of like every three years. Um, it was a new model and they couldn't find it at the right mix because you need to let some people in too uh, before you start charging them. So I think the right uh, ratio of that is still to be determined. And you're one of the people who are kind of forging ahead and figuring that out. Um, but I think a lot of the Substack writers have figured out that, you know, a, a, 
a fairly small monthly fee is definitely doable for a lot of readers. And then when you add that up and you aggregate it for the writer, then now it turns into not such a small uh, monthly revenue. Yeah, yeah. It, it's so interesting to watch it evolve. And I think that there has to be some level or some form of paywall at some point. I, I'm I, What I'm kind of waiting for is for some of these smaller regional papers to join forces and and use this scale to, to, to create kind of a shared bucket of revenue so that you can access more than one. Because every little... News, newspaper across New England now has a paywall and some of them let you see a few for free. Some of them don't. And when I'm doing research for the newsletter and I just need one article about Big Squaw up in Maine and I have to subscribe forever <laughs> to get it, I'm probably not going to read the article, right? Whereas if there was some way for, for there to be like a, a, a collective where where you could get to a lot of local papers and they have all this shared revenue that might work better. Um, I also like the model of just, you get a couple articles and then you start to pay the journal. I, I can't ever get into there because they have they make you pay right away. So I, I don't know what the right model is. And I don't think anyone does. No. And, and when you talk about, you know, that sounds like a great model you're talking about, but it's you also have private companies, you know, like like the parent company of the Telegrammy's Gazette is Gannett Company, the biggest newspaper company in the country. And, you know, it's I don't know how it, what it, how it looks at competing with, you know, joining forces with, say, the Boston Globe, which is independently owned by John Henry. Uh, that's a fierce competitor of Gannett now. And also uh, the Springfield newspaper, uh, the, the third biggest in the state after the Globe and the Telegram. I don't know how they would feel about joining forces with them. I think Gannett's strategy more is just to acquire more outlets. But um, yeah, it's a real problem. I, mean, I have trouble finding some of my old columns now. You know? Oh, really? <laughs> oh, yeah. Do you cut them out of the paper and save them? No, I stopped. I, I, I really weaned myself off print. Like I have all these old clips from the Telegram Gazette, but I just, like my new home office, I don't have, I don't have any paper in here. No, no notepads. I mean, a couple, well, I use this thing called a smart pen. So I have some a couple of digital notepads, but I just don't, I don't know. I'm just like uh, not using much paper. Even the old school journalists, even the old school reporter guys are giving up on it. Wild world. Yeah. I, I mean, I subscribe only online. I, I get the Telegram Gazette, the New York Times, the Boston Globe, but all online. And the yeah. New York. Yeah. yeah I, I guess what I was thinking of was more how outside bought ski. And so now you can subscribe to the whole suite of outside products. Right. So if Gannett had a, a common login for all their papers, which oh, right. are quite a few, right. Not more nice. than competitors. Yeah. That would be really, really nice to be able to do yeah. that. All right. Let's talk about skiing. Um, so, so you, I think have a really interesting kind of, pattern that you've developed where you you really get a lot of skiing in every year so so talk about the the kind of hidey holes you have all around new england where you have access to a condo or whatever and so and where you try to go every year and, and how many days you try to get out all right i try to hit 80 days okay and, and i have a full-time job too during the week right. so, so it takes work yep um i do a lot of uphill and so i count those days and i count cross-country days too but um, like you, I'm skiing every weekend and very often a uh, long weekend. And I have over the years, um, 
from mo- mostly from the the race community, the ski race community, Wachusett, because you know my son came up through that in the juniors, and he went on to ski in college at UMass, race at college, and then so and then we he also trained at Berkshire East for three years, and then in college for uh, for a few years after that. So all these people I met through that community, and we're all we all stick together, and they're they're scattered all over. They have houses or places at different mountains. So when I go to Sunday River, there's someone I ski with. They would go to North Conway. There's people I ski with. Uh, Cannon. There's people I ski with. Killington. Almost everywhere. And it's just a nice spread out community. And I get to, you know, these people are so passionate about their mountains, and they love showing me around. You know, even if it's every couple of years. And I think I know these mountains pretty well, but nothing like that. <laughs> Yeah, there's nothing like skiing with a local who knows what they're doing. Let's let's start in Massachusetts. I, I think that you and you and I have talked about this before, but Massachusetts is a very underestimated ski state. And and I think that even though the ski areas are small, you have some really, really good, smart operators for some of these remaining ski areas. And there aren't many left. If you go on to New England ski uh a New England Lost Ski Areas project, there used to be around two hundred in Massachusetts, and now there's about a dozen. So you have some smart folks. So so just talk about the Massachusetts ski scene and and how you try to to get around that and connect with that every year. Well, it's really it's really vibrant. I mean, because close in the Boston orbit, big big market. It's actually the Boston Worcester market. Yeah, what Tuesday? You also have Neshoba Valley, which you know the Olympic uh, great um, Pam Fletcher uh, family runs that and. So you have, first of all, you have thriving uh, night ski race leagues in both of those places that generates a lot of interest. Um, uh, and even Boston has, um, and then the North Shore of Boston has a small ski area called uh, Bradford. It's still open and, and thriving. All right, but west, the Western Mass ski scene, sees, uh, ski scene, as you've documented in your, in your work, is really the, the most fertile ground, you know, uh, other than Wachusett, it's... Uh, the, the the two biggest ski areas in terms of vertical feet are out there, Berkshire East and Jiminy Peak. And each, both of them are like mini Vermont mountains, as you know, and especially Berkshire East and also Jiminy get get the snow patterns of, of Vermont. They have big elevation, the same storms that settle over Mount Snow and Stratton usually hit uh, uh, Jiminy and Berkshire East. And then and then Catamount now has grown under, under the uh, ownership of the Schaefer family which you and I both know them. And I've known John Schaefer for many years, just from skiing, being a Berkshire, Berkshire East regular. I drove out there every weekend for many years to ski. And, uh, well, they bought, they bought Catamount, put some tremendous improvements, including cutting some new trails. But there's a Western Mass, maybe even more than, than Worcester, has got a deeply embedded ski culture in it. And part of it had to do with the 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 immigrant experience also there were Nordic jumps uh, around, you know, especially near around Springfield and Amherst and uh, Pioneer Valley. So, and there's also a few thriving cross country areas. So, you know, and then you have a, a city ski area, Basque, which has a tremendously long history and it was one of the first ski areas in the U S and the ski trains came up from New York city. So there's, um, the, it, it's unbelievable in Western Mass. It's it's. I think it's bigger than the Midwest. Big, the mountains are a little bit bigger than the Midwest mountains. Uh, not as big as Vermont, but almost you get that experience. And 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 the Western Mass areas are not overrun. 
So there's room to ski. Um, well, Jiminy gets pretty pretty crowded with the uh, Albany crowd uh, on weekends. But I don't know. The Western Mass ski season, you know, Berkshire East is the hub for the local racing uh, community out there. But there's a lot of uh, cross-pollination between southern Vermont and, and Western Mass. Skiers go up and down, back and forth. Um, just it's it's really fascinating. I feel like Jiminy Peak has been on a lot of people's radar for a long time. And the Fairbanks really just did an awesome job of building that place up and modernizing it. And they got the high-speed sixer there and everything else. Berkshire East, I feel like, was overlooked for a very, very, very long time. And I feel like it's coming into its own and 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 becoming a little bit more of a regional player that's not overlooked on the drive up to Vermont. I don't know if that's the Indy Pass, just getting it a little more exposure. I don't know if that's just me getting to know the owner and 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 imagining that it's getting more well known. What, what's your take on Berkshire East and its and its upward trajectory, or or if there is one lately? No, no, there definitely is an upward trajectory. Um, kind of started when they installed their first modern lift five years ago or so, a fixed a medium speed fixed grip quad with a, uh, a carpet loader at the bottom. So that was, that was a big deal. And I, I love the way the Schaefers went to um, Skytrack for American Lift Company for a uh, medium speed fixed grip instead of, you know, overwhelming the hill with a high speed. And also just the cost to maintain um, high speed lifts with the grippers and to replace those. And it's just prohibitive. So they were smart. They also, I guess their, their real meteoric rise also started when they established the, uh, the, the, the wind turbine at the top and now are 100% powered. I mean, Germany always touted that they were, you know, 60, 75% wind powered. Berkshire East has always been 100% wind powered. So they even sell the surplus energy to the towns. So, um, but I think, so last year was the first year during the COVID year that, that Berkshire East was what we call crowded, quote unquote. Okay, it, it had always been. I, you could go there on Christmas week, and there's no weight on the on the main chair at the base. Um, it's so laid back, and so you know, so, it's such a great experience, and and a good amount of terrain, the most vertical in Mass. Uh, actually, counterintuitively, it's more than Jiminy. Um, and all right, so I think that so I think last year was like the watershed point when we were really discovered in a big way. Um, I think Indy definitely had something to do with it. Um, just some of the other modernizations the Shavers have done, like the snowmaking went from like a C minus to like a B plus over the last four years. Uh, grooming, you know, they used to have a groomer, one groomer machine that would break down a lot of the times. Now they have a couple that are fully functional. And, and they've, they've um, welcomed the uphill skiing community. And they've turned, oh, they've also turned, you know, Berkshire East into a truly you're, they're like a leader in, in utilizing the place in the summer, okay? It's not just a zip line. It's also a phenomenal mountain coaster. And then, you know, they own, the Schaefer's own a river rafting company, and the Deerfield River is a big rafting center. So now it's year-round. So people who come in the summer, then now I've discovered to go in the winter, too. Yeah, Sean, how much do you think that, that the Berkshire surge last year had to do with the fact that it was just really hard to travel to Vermont? A lot. A lot. It had a, I mean, that's why I was there a lot, but it, uh, but it also had a lot to do with once people got there and saw how, how great a mountain it is, they just kept coming back. 
It really is a, a fantastic ski mountain. I mean, first of all, they have the border to border policy. They let you ski anywhere. Like you said, it gets those Southern Vermont uh, storm systems. So there's pretty good glades there. There's good pitch. There's a lot of little nooks and crannies. And, uh, and, and they're, they're planning to expand with a whole new terrain pod and a new triple, not a new triple, a new used triple, of course, because Berkshire East, that was going to come online this year. Uh, but I, that's looking like next year. So it, it's, it's just a good big mountain. A really nice day of skiing. It is. I mean, if, if anything, though, if you, for, for beginner terrain, maybe they're a little short on that, uh, you know, other than the, um, you know, the carpet for the never ever. So they might be a little short on beginner, low intermediate terrain. And, but for, for experts who love, you know, steeps and plunges, it's great. And one thing is, as, as you know, and you've written about the, the Shaver family bought Catamount and they manage Bosquet and they have a, deal to manage uh, a hermitage club, a private ski club in Wilmington, Vermont. And so the question going forward is like, how much are you going to focus on Berkshire East? Uh, I, I have to talk to John about this, like keep the focus on Berkshire East while still running three other ski areas and probably more to come. Yeah. I, he, uh, John told me that, and I, I was pretty surprised to hear this, that A, Catamount is larger, which I, I didn't, I uh, appreciate it before and and B it's twice as busy as Berkshire. It is. I was there last year. I was I was astounded at how busy. I mean, Catamount has been 100% discovered by the COVID refugee crowd from New York and Connecticut. People buying houses around there and it's larger now because they cut more trails. Uh Chaffers, but before that it had less vertical than than Berkshire East. Yeah, it's Catamount is almost like a mini Vermont place now. Berkshire is a little bit more obscure and geographically harder to get to. Yeah, but w- w- what I'll give the Schaefer's credit for, and and I write about this all the time, is they've already put in three new lifts at Catamount. They, they tore out some old ones, um, but they have two more coming online this year. And w- one of them is a second summit lift. And that's always been a, a pinch point there is that they only had that one summit quad. And now they're putting in another one. So they should have some nice redundancy and help spread out the crowd. So, so they are aggressively trying to manage that. No, they are. They are. And there's a way to ski that place uh, boundary to boundary. Like like I was talking, we, you and I were talking about this the other day, that there is a place at allegedly, uh, you know, um, super crowded places like Mount Snow, like Loon, like now Catamount. There's a way to ski them boundary to boundary, starting early and moving counterclockwise across the hill. Or you, you can stay ahead of the... Uh, of the large numbers of skiers and, and snowboarders. And, and do you find that, it, is there any mountain that you found that not to be true at, or, or is there always a hack if you just, if you just think about it and plan a little bit? I feel like there's always a hack. Uh, there's no place that I'm, I'm not going to go because it's crowded. Like people say, Oh, well, Stowe is super crowded. Well, not if you get to the gondola at seven thirty AM and they open. <laughs> and they still opens at seven thirty, has for years. So that's a must when you're skiing still, you know, got to hit that 7.30 to 9.30 window. Yeah. Um, then you go over to Spruce when it gets crowded at Mansfield. Then you come back to Mansfield when it's too crowded, uh, when the crowds have left. Um, at, at Loon, you start at South Peak, which got the big new 8-pack, uh, mm-hmm. and you move all the way across to North Peak. And then when people are in lunch, you have North Peak. To, then you have the gondola slows down, and you, you ski at the center of the mountain. Um, and Mount Snow, the same. First thing, you start at, you start at North Face. Mm-hmm. Right. Then you move across the mountain, do a few runs in the middle, and then you go out to uh, Sundance in that area, which is, you know, 
pretty usually pretty empty. I I, I think you gotta you gotta put these online somewhere, Sean. Sean's Sean's secret mountain hacks for New England. Yeah, I mean the, the the locals showed me how to do this. I mean the Cannon people know how to stay on the upper lift all afternoon. Um, there's any a number of other places. Killington, you know, people, it's it's a misnomer. People think it's really crowded, and but it's so spread out and so well distributed. That's part of the reason like people went were really angry at the fast uh, pass that Powder put in, and you wrote this uh, famous column about it. <laughs> they don't need it in Killington. You don't really wait on lift lines at Killington. You know, maybe for the K1 gondola upload, that's about it. Yeah. Yeah, the, the place is is just massive, and uh, if you if you just think about it a little bit, you can you can always find something. Um, I, I do want to talk just a little bit more about about the Schaefers and their their strategy of creating this little regional superpass, which I think is so smart. And I think a lot of ski areas are deer in headlights when it comes to Vale and Altera, and they really don't know how to respond. But essentially, if you can ski Berkshire's Catamount and Nabuskay all in one pass for less than an Epic or Icon pass. For a lot of skiers, that's more than they'll ever need. Plus, you can add on an indie pass if you want to travel. But I thought it was a, a really intelligent response to, to what may seem like a helpless situation as the big guys gobble up all of these ski areas, these large ski areas that are much better capitalized than you, and put them on these dirt cheap passes. Well, yeah, their summit pass was a, is a great thing. I mean, you get three mountains... Uh, and a senior pass, they, they define seniors to their credit as, as only 60 and all. Oh, wow. So in the early season, it's like 475 in the spring. So that's an amazing value to get three really good mountains. And so I actually sampled all three of them last year in one day. I started oh, awesome. out at Therese and then I drove to Busquet and then I drove to Mesquite and then I drove to Catamount. And John said I was the first person who ever did that, but then of course, you know, under the summit pass, because last year was the first year you could do that. Mm-hmm. So because that was, they had brought Bosque in under the umbrella. But um, yeah, the summit pass is great. I, a lot of people ski Catamount and Berkshire East uh, together. Yeah, I, I keep waiting for just because John's so fearless and so original as thinking. I keep waiting for him to just buy one of these big mountains up in New England and just have this flagship. Should be a perfect feeder system. You got these three little mountains down in Massachusetts of varying sizes and and sort of ability and 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 purpose, and then you can just funnel them up north. I keep telling him to buy Jay Peak. I don't know. I don't think he's listening to me though. I think it's going to happen at some point. Um, John's going to get the shavers going to move into Vermont. Jay Peak might be a little too far for their economy of scale model, where they rotate. They they have like workers, you know, lift techs and others moving on the on the circuit. Yeah. You know, um, but can I tell you a quick funny story about um, Absolutely. The, the friendly rivalry between the Crowleys of Wachusett and uh, the Schaefers of Berkshire East? So yeah, let's hear it. There was, uh, whatever, 10 years ago, my son Sam, who's 25 now, was, and, and another young racer were doing really well. And they, and they but anyway, Wachusett was getting, we were getting less and less uh, space, hill space for racing. So we said, oh, well, we're going to pick up and go to Berkshire East which is more uncommon in those days. And no knock on the Wachusett ski team, which they have plenty of hill space now. They have a thriving, fantastic race program. Uh, really, really good. A lot of friends in there. But um, so I told Jeff Crowley, the president, like, sorry, Jeff, we're, we're going to Berkshire East for a few years. And he goes, all right, well, you, you, you tell uh, John Schaefer that 
you know, and, and you're going to have, you know, much worse French fries. <laughs> you're going to have a cold ride on that old uh, triple uh, to the top. And what was the other thing? Um, there was some other thing that we weren't going to get. And um, so I got I got to Berkshire East. And so we, we arrived, my, my friend, the other family and us, we arrived and we met uh, um, John's uh, father, Roy, and the head of the uh, ski team who go, hey, we're, we're here from Wachusett. And they go, great, don't send any more. Uh, they, they like to keep it quiet. But, but anyway, then I, one day I was on a chairlift with John Schaefer, and I said, you know, Jeff Crowley says that their French fries are a lot better. And Schaefer got really uh, pissed off and said, I'll put my fries up against anyone. <laughs> so so did, did you – is it true? Does Wachusett have better fries? Ooh, now I'm going to piss off uh, John Schaefer, but I'm going to say, yeah, they do. Oh, they, man. I mean, uh, the Wachusett Base Lodge is like the most – about the most advanced uh, ski cafeteria food you're going to find. And, and counterintuitively, again, it's pretty cheap. Yeah. It's like half the price of a Vermont really? ski food. Yeah. And they have supermarket grade sushi and they have different stuff. But yeah, they keep the prices really low, kind of on the volume discounter model. Yeah. All right, John, you got to step your game up there, man. It's, uh... No, the sure East food has improved, but I don't think skiers really go places for how good the food is. I don't know. I mean, yeah. um... I, I mean, I think, I think you're right. Uh, however, if the food is good, that that is a nice bonus. It is. Uh, so, so looking, like I said, Massachusetts has about a dozen ski areas. Have you been to all of them? All but one. Only I've only not skied at Otis Ridge, which sports the uh, it's in Otis, Vermont, Otis, Mass, on the Connecticut border in the Southern Berkshires. Has the highest base elevation in Mass. The, really? Their only limitation is yeah, they uh, what is it? Maybe. 1500 feet but it only goes up a couple hundred feet after that yeah but they have good snow because of that um have not skied there i have skied everywhere else and i've skied at about four areas that are now closed and Um, what are the ones that are now closed uh well a really big one was mount tom Mm -hmm. have you heard of that place yeah Uh, yeah yeah that was that was a real you know western mass classic good mountain Mm -hmm. uh just outside was it in holyoke or oh, you know, I'm places. not sure. So, all right, now, Tom, um, there's a little one here in Central Mass in, in Barrie, Pine Ridge, which my one of my first few years at the Telegram, I, I had the unfortunate uh, opportunity to write about their closing with a page one story. It was just one of those that went. And then what were the other two? Oh, well, Brody, Brody Mountain, right next to Jiminy Peak. And they used to call it Brody's Irish Alps because they would dye the slopes green on St. Uh, Patty's Day. And uh, what's the other one that's closed? Oh, uh, Blandford, which was the community-owned nonprofit club uh, in Western Mass. Yeah, let, uh, let's. I want to talk about two of those in particular. So, so Blandford was actually owned by Jeff Murdoch, who owns Butternut and Otis Ridge. So, you know, I, I felt really good when he bought Blandford because I said, okay, here's a guy who he, he saved Otis Ridge. That place was going to go under, and he bought it. I was like, oh, he did the same thing for Blandford. That's great. Uh, but then after just a couple years, and this happened right around the time of the COVID shutdown, um, he said, no, we, we can't make it work. That was a sad day. I mean, Blanford was a rarity before Murdoch bought it. It was owned by a nonprofit community group. And 
it was a stop on the race circuit for the junior racers. They had a <laughs> they had a special crockpot room where everybody brought their crockpots, and um, <laughs> and I mean, I mean, their lodge was so crowded. I, I think it was like a, a health um, threat even <laughs> in the non-COVID days. Uh, you you packed in so tight. Yeah. Um, but, and, and it was, they had a lot of acreage, not the steepest in the world, but it was just a, you know, and that it's just a great old place. It's gone now. But I, I think that's just the one the thing I'm afraid now is I'm worried that Neshoba Valley will at some point cease to exist because the, the value of the, of the real estate is just massive there. Uh, and you know, it's been a family business and there's only one family member now left. And uh, now that Pam Fletcher is no longer a part of it, you know, Alan Jr. is running it. And I fear that that may not be long for this world, but I hope not. So you, you, you're saying you think it might be more, more valuable as a housing development than a ski area? Yeah, because Westford Mass is just the epicenter of the super high priced Metro West Boston real estate market. It's just like, it's like the poster child for, for huge uh, real estate prices because it's a nice town, but you're you're 20 minutes from Boston. I mean, you have to hope that part of the value of the homes around that are the fact that there's a ski area right there. Yeah, maybe, maybe. But, uh, you know, Neshoba's, it's got, you know, 400 vertical. It's good learner's place. Got a couple of good terrain parks, but it doesn't have the amenities of what you said. It doesn't have high-speed lifts. What you said has three. It doesn't have a sprawling base lodge with two, you know, two to four restaurants and high-end ski shop. It doesn't have the pumping system. What use it has? It can't really. It can't really offer. And it's not really a mountain. I mean, what one of what use its marketing distinctions is that it's they call it uh, real mountain skiing, just minutes away. Because at two thousand one hundred feet, what use it is an official mountain instead of a, a, a hill, an shoulder of a hill. Yeah, but what, what does Massachusetts look like if, if all you have is uh, Wachusett, Berkshire East, Catamount Butternut, and Jiminy Peak, if it's just big places? Because I, I worry if, if, if someone like Jeff Murdoch, who knows how to run a ski area and has done it for a long, long time, can't keep Blandford open and we can't keep a place like Neshoba from, from shutting down, I know that's just a hypothetical. You know, what, what is Massachusetts skiing without these little bumps where, where people can learn for cheap and High schools have programs and racing have pro- has programs. Like what, what happens then? Well, Blue, Blue Hills near Boston has been uh, on shaky ground over the years and somehow continues to, to move on. Uh, I mean, one problem they have there is the weather. They're you're so close to the water and Boston, the Boston region is so much more temperate than it is out here. 15 degrees, you know, warmer on a cold winter day. So, um, but Oh, without the loss of Neshoba, I mean, I'm going to have to talk to these guys now, but it's, um, the loss of Neshoba would be uh, devastating. Um, Wachusett is never going out of business, um, and already you have a generation of new, um, uh, you know, the ownership family. The, the younger kids are coming into it now, and they'll hold it for decades, I'm, I'm confident. Uh, Berkshire East is always going to be independent. So... I don't know. I think the infrastructure we're down to now is pretty much stable. Maybe not, maybe Otis Ridge not, um, but I think it's pretty stable. We're not going to see too many more closures. I mean, uh, um, knock on wood. 
Yeah, most of the folks left really know what they're doing. And, and most importantly, these are the ones that are left are the ones that invested in snowmaking. And, and that's really what you need more than anything in New England to make it work. I'm actually not, I'm not completely writing off Blandford yet, Sean, because I contacted them last year. They said it's fully intact. They haven't sold anything. The groomers are there. The snow guns are there. The lifts are there. Everything still works. And they'll talk to a potential buyer. I don't know if there's a buyer out there and I don't know who can make it work if the Murdochs can't make it work, but it's, it's, it has a chance. It does. And as you know, you've written about the comebacks of, of ski areas and, you know, ski areas do, do come back closed ones. I mean, we had a, we had a very popular one near what you used to call Mount Watetic that closed in the eighties, late eighties or early nineties, but now it's become a backcountry Mecca. There. Oh, cool. Um, but you know, it's but especially with um, you know these very strong independently owned structures. You know, uh, Bertie's family and the Crowley family. I mean, I don't know for sure, but w- whether Vale uh, has looked at uh, what you said, I heard rumors, but there's no way they would ever sell. I mean, and same with John Schaefer. I mean, he'd be angry to even get an offer. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I, I would say absolutely. Val and Altera would both take what you said if it was for sale, which which I, I doubt it ever will be. Another good uh, comeback story, Sean, this is a little south of you, um, but I just interviewed yesterday Eric Anderson down in Connecticut who bought uh, the old Woodbury ski area. And and I'm, I'm, as I'm sure you're aware, the old the old owner was a really eclectic guy and he would blow snow and he would like open in October. Um, and, and that place closed down five, six years ago. And I haven't written this story yet. It's not a podcast, but he, uh, I talked to I talked to him, and he's uh, he's aiming to open reopen Woodbury within the next couple of years. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, Connecticut, the Connecticut ski scene is really resilient. Uh, there, it's pretty remarkable, and um, that's on sometimes on the on the Southern New England race circuit for the juniors. And uh, yeah, there's but there's also a lot of you know capital uh, flying around Connecticut to help finance some of these comebacks. Um, so yeah, so I'm, I'm still pretty happy about the state of, uh, Massachusetts skiing. And one thing I wanted to plug was, uh, cross country skiing. The city of Worcester has a new, uh, Nordic park, which is run by a nonprofit. And, uh, it's a, it's a like 60 acres of gladed trails right in the heart of the city, uh, with it. And they have a groomer. So, um, even, even cross country is, you know, comes, goes out and comes back, but, you know, I also wanted to point out, though, that the city of Worcester here, where we still have two ski areas within close driving distance, once had three functioning rope toes. Wow. So I'm sure, I'm pretty sure the city of New York did not. No, I mean, or, or and Buffalo is the next biggest city after after Worcester. So it's... The New England Lost Ski Areas Project found evidence of a, a rope toe uh, in the Bronx. In, uh, really? Yeah, what's that big park up there? Oh, nice. Oh, up at um, up at the very tip. Yeah, it, it's it's a, there's this massive park in the Bronx, and I my uh, I'm going to send you this link later, and I'll include it in the podcast for people listening. Um, but it's uh, it, but there's no it's Van Cortlandt Park, but th- there's uh, no there's no like official records. There's a lot of anecdotal evidence, so it's. You may be right about that, but uh, but anyway, what what happened to the rope toes around uh, Worcester? 
Well, there's three. There was three in the city of Worcester, at least three. Um, and then, and there's some people who do urban skiing in Worcester because we have it's a really hilly city. Um, but uh, there was at least a dozen functioning rope toes in the towns around Worcester, the farms, the hills. It's a, it's a somewhat hilly area. Um, they and, and there was a city-owned ski area in uh, Marlborough, Mass, uh, to the east of Worcester called Jericho Hill. Went out of business in early 90s, late 80s. Um, I, the, the rope toes just, you know, they faded out, especially with the competition of, you know, Wachusett became such an attraction and Watadick and uh, Ski Ward somehow stayed in business. Uh, it was not just a rope toe. They have a, a, a triple chairlift. They have a T-bar. They got a couple rope toes. Uh, but they stayed in business just because the ingenuity of the family that, um, that uh, runs it and just changing with the times. They have a little mini terrain park, the uh, tremendous lesson program, and also just the population density there. So they've, they've thrived. But, um, you know, the rope toes just went the way of, you know, the uh, history, you know. Mm-hmm. Do, do you think it was uh, less consistent snowfall over time or do you think it was just liability? But there's a lot of things that can explain why these small operations folded up. I don't think it's less consistent snowfall. I mean, Worcester, we get, this is a very snowy region. I mean, some years we have the infamous uh, distinction of being the snowiest city in the country. Oh, wow. Uh, even in the age of global climate change, I mean, just get hammered winter after winter. Um, yeah. So it's not that. It's just, it's capital and liability. And I mean, I'm a big fan of surface lifts, but there's a lot of, little injuries you don't hear about yeah. <laughs> on surface lifts, like people getting hair cotton things and scarves and yikes all right well okay so i have one more massachusetts key question and then we'll move up into into uh, upper new england so i talked i hosted uh brian fairbank last year on the podcast and we talked about jiminy peak and one of the things i asked him about was when they purchased brody and then shut it down and then they put a clause in the the deed of the property or whatever it's called it basically says whoever buys this can't develop it as a ski area. And I asked him if someone could buy him out of that. And he said, well, I don't know, you know, maybe there's a number, but what I would tell them is there's not enough water over there to support it. So curious about your whole take on that of, of Jiminy Peak buying the competitor, eventually closing it down and then, and then setting it up so that that hill could not reopen. Well, on the surface, that was a pretty, um, it, it appeared to be a pretty, uh, mean thing to do, you know, buy, buy your close competitor, a great hill, and then close it down. But, you know, the water issue is, is, is got a lot of merit to it. And, and it's almost like Hermitage and Mount Snow. Could Hermitage exist as a private ski area? Probably not enough demand for it. Um, so it's like the whole phenomenon of two separate ski areas right next to each other in the Northeast U.S., it uh, doesn't, doesn't really work, um, except in a few places, like maybe North Conway. Yeah, um, Northern Vermont. Yeah, um, yeah, Mad River and Sugarbush, uh, but a, a different animal and tons of water. Yeah, and tons of snow. <laughs> yes. And distinct cultures at each. Yes, for sure. In, in, in North Conway, I mean, there's a clearly distinct culture be, between each mountain in that, in that uh, community. Yeah, so, so let's talk about North Conway. This is uh, 
often referred to as the best ski town in New England. And I'm in that camp. And I know you have an affinity for this place. So so talk about North Conway and, and what that place means to Worcester and to you personally. Okay, so I've been skiing there a lot for the last 25 years. And in the last 10 or 15, I started kind of renting a room up there, going up there a lot. And the ski race circuit went there. And I, I agree with you. I think it is the best ski town in New England. Although um, Lake Placid might be the best one in the Northeast. Um, so, or that's debatable. Um, I mean, no, it's the best. North Conway is the best ski town in New Hampshire. And Stowe might be the best ski town in New England. But um, it's a real community. It's not just revolve. It doesn't revolve just around skiing. And also in North Conway, you have access to this high mountain culture, alpine culture that's the closest on the East Coast to the West or Europe, you know, with, with the Mount Washington backcountry. And the the rapid expansion of the backcountry skiing scene in the last uh, five to eight years has really spawned a lot of new business in North Conway. Uh, you have um, Andrew Drummond Ski the White Shop in Jackson, New Hampshire. Uh, every place rents uh, backcountry gear up there. So it's like an international and national you know, climbing and backcountry skiing mecca. But apart from that, you have these historic ski areas. Uh, many of them, the trails were cut in the 30s by Austrian immigrants or uh, um, the Works Progress Administration, like Adetash, right? So you have really iconic terrain up there. Uh, uh, and that includes Cranmore, which is, at 1,200 vertical, it skis like it's 2,000. Really? Um, oh, it's amazing. It's somehow the trails like, cut across the fall line back and forth, back and forth. So you get a long, long, much longer run than you would think. And then Adetash too has these, these runs just carved out of granite, you know, snaking down. And then, then Wildcat of course is, you know, it's not a resort. It's just this really wild mountain with a direct view of Tuckman Ravine. And then you have the family area, King Pine, and then you have Sunday river, which is, uh, you know, an hour drive way and then you can include cannon too uh and, and Bretton woods and Bretton woods is the posh place in new hampshire with fabulous place to ski on a powder day uh, low angle it, it kind of reminds me of like powder mountain in utah okay. like you get a ton of snow and it's low angle but it's still powder skiers paradise yeah for, for new england um and and you know cannon is 40 minutes away loon is 45 minutes away so ton of variety if you want to ski up there and the epic pass has really opened it up for people who love to ski Adertash and wildcat mm -hmm. and, and peak actually first started it but you have the peak pass previous owners but uh a lot of locals call it the at and the cat mm -hmm. so two different skiing experiences and the affinity for worcester people central mass boston people is new hampshire is culturally just so much connected to Massachusetts. So many uh, work-related people, you know, commuters living in New Hampshire, uh, North Conway, a lot of retired people from Mass, um, you know, m more so on the whole than Vermont. I mean, the Worcester and Central Mass and Boston still send a lot of people to Okemo and Mount Snow and Killington, but it's just not percentage-wise, it's much lower number of the overall market in New Hampshire. You know the market is is well over fifty percent from Massachusetts, considerably over. Wow, is that just the I ninety three effect? Yeah, the the ski superhighway. Yeah, ninety three, and you know, ski ninety three is um, 
you know, you have Waterville, Loon, and Cranmore just directly off 93. Waterville, about maybe a 10-mile drive. But so that makes them tremendously accessible. Um, and North Conway, though, is, is not so accessible. But, but the allure is the great town. And, you know, you have, you have Mount Washington towering over. Yeah. Well, let's talk about Adatash first. You said you had a column coming up. Or, uh, that's focused on Adatash. Why, why is that scary of so much interest to you? I just, I, mainly because I, it's my favorite area in North Conway area, uh, in, in, the, in the greater, in the Mount Washington Valley. Um, just been skiing there for so long and progress is slow at Adatash. It's not a, you know, it's, it's not a, um, you know, it's a whole different culture than the family ski areas of Vermont about snow killing it, but Okemo, um, but it is a family area and then it's not. It's, um, they host a local ski race. There's a lot of college ski racing that goes on there. There's, um, it's just a gnarly New England mountain that it just doesn't make a lot of concessions to, um, to, you know, high-end luxury uh, stuff. And it, um, but but yet, you know, with with the advent of, of Peak and now Vale, just really good grooming and snowmaking, um, excellent um, compared to let's say Wildcat, which those two were never their selling point. And so this year, I mean, this may not sound like much, but the so the triple, the summit of Adatash is somewhat inaccessible by this really slow, awful triple chair, very windy and cold and scary. And there's there's a bunch of great uh, black diamond runs and or and maybe one blue heading from the top and one of the best ones is called it has this really strange name Wilfred's Gong G A W M. Okay, I don't know the derivation of that, but that until this year did not have snowmaking, so it was not open a lot. Now it has snowmaking. To me, that's a tectonic shift in Adatash skiing. Um, also, they Vail and they're a huge um, multi. Was it two hundred million dollar lift uh, um, investment plan? It, it um, was more than that. It, it, it's an insane amount. Well, they included the one the one place they included in their New Hampshire holdings was Adatash, and it's a new lift going up next year that replaced two old doubles. It'll make accessing Bear Peak, which is a tremendous area in its own right, uh, you know, a lot easier. So there's things that are happening and changing at Adatash. Um, that will be of great interest to, to skiers here in Massachusetts and elsewhere. Yeah, there's a lot of griping about the triple chair. And, and I know Peak had a lot of problems with that. And it was down for several months the year before Vale bought it. And when I hosted Tim Baker on the podcast, uh, Vale's East Region CEO recently, he said, yeah, we're going to fix that eventually. It's just, it's a, it's a tricky piece of terrain. I think there's a lot of ways they could go with that, Sean. What, I don't know if a base to summit lift really makes sense there given how pinched that is at the top. But what do you think? What 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 is a solution that you think would work for a new oh, lift configuration? So you're, over mid, so you're talking about a mid-mountain lift up there. Um, yeah, possibly splitting it, right? So so it, like when you're at Stratton and you go up Sun Bowl and you get off that and you go up American Flyer. So they can they can split it. And if if it's windy at the top, you still have the lower mountain available. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that. I mean I mean, it's not that long compared to lifts at Sugarbush and Stowe and uh, Killington, you know, I mean, but the geography is tough. It's super rocky at top. And then the, the, there's places where there's, you know, uh, 
150 foot drop to the bottom, um, to the ground. And so uh, Adidas already has a, a high speed quad that goes, you know, halfway up and then stops. Mm-hmm. Yep. And you wish that went all the way up to the top because that's another option is they could string, they could replace the existing uh, mid mountain quad with a, um, a quad from that end near the lodge to go to the top. But the, the skiing from the top of Atatash is just um, unique. And one good thing, paradoxically, about this slow, windy, awful triple is that it keeps, it keeps the numbers of skiers to a minimum at the top. If, you're, if you can brave that lift, I mean, there's not, even on the busiest days, you don't wait on that lift line more than five minutes. Mm-hmm. Now, as an uphill guy, did you get bent when Peak would not let people skin up it when the triple was down? Yeah, Adatash under peak for some inexplicably had a uh, ban on uphill, <laughs> and and Vale just you know Vale that's a whole other story but Vale you know kept that in place and but I was more angry when when Wildcat uh, you know well more disappointed when Vale changed Wildcat from used to be able to do uphill at Wildcat during the day and now no longer. No, another story though is Vale is kind of relenting a little bit on its uphill policies around okay. uh, New England and allowing it again at Mount Snow during the day, for example, which is a huge, the skinny community really happy about that. But, you know, Anatash Wildcat, I mean, the uphilling at those two places is kind of irrelevant when you have Mount Washington. Right. And, and you have the Tuckerman uh, backcountry and other gladed zones created by the Granite Alliance, the, uh, um, you know, the backcountry nonprofit. So, you know, added, uphill at Adatash and Wildcat is like, all right, you know, it's it's good. And Canmore has uphill during the day and uh, you have to buy a, uh, some kind of a low-cost pass. But um, it's, it, you know, things are kind of moving in a, in a better direction for, for the uphill community up there. Is Vail charging for that? Uh, Vail charges a nominal... For for Mount Snow uphill pass, it's like twenty five bucks for the year. Okay, you know, but at nearby Stratton, it's free. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, Stratton Intrawest has made a point of uh, unfettered uphill access, pretty much. Um, uh, I think one thing is it's a differentiator, but it also uh, I think Intrawest and now Vail Resorts is figuring out that uphill skiers also spend money in the cafeteria and the bar. And their family members do too, and they buy equipment. And so you can monetize them to some extent. They're not just taking the services. I, I believe Magic, if you if you uphill, they give you a, a single ride lift ticket. So you can ski back down and take the lift. They did until last year. They okay. suspended it for COVID. And I, I asked, I got to find out if Jeff Hathaway is bringing it back. I think he is. Uh, they used to give you a, uh, a token. And then they switched it the year before COVID. No more token. It was just a special ticket. Mm-hmm. And Magic also has a dedicated uphill trail through the woods, which is really nice and not that um, only only Bolton Valley has that besides Magic. Nice. So New Hampshire is a New Hampshire is a really interesting ski state to me, Sean, because it's 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 pinched in between Maine and Vermont, both of which have these giant ski areas. You have Saddleback and Sunday River and Sugarloaf. And the other side, you have Killington and Stowe and Sugarbush and Jay Peak. But but then New Hampshire has a lot of kind of medium to small, large ski areas, right? So they have like Waterville and Brenton Woods and Cannon and, and all these. So what I'm getting to here is there's a bunch of expansions underway that would, in one way or another, 
give a little more ski terrain in New Hampshire. So you have an expansion at Ragged, which is already cut, but there's no chair and I haven't heard an update on it. And that's that place is owned by uh, Mountain Capital Partners. Um, you have uh, Mount Sunapee, obviously owned by Vale. It's, it's not, they have a master plan, but that expansion seems it's a little way out. Gunstock has a massive expansion, but they're having some drama as far as who's going to manage that place. And then Waterville Valley has a really big expansion that would actually take that ski area down to the village. So, so what do you think about those expansions? You know, which, which ones do you think are are more uh, aspirational than realistic? And and, and what are the most real, uh, likely ones to get complete? Well, I think Gunstock, uh, as you've explored, is mostly aspirational because of its tangled uh, county ownership and all the bureaucratic wrangling and fighting that goes into that. And and I will say overall, like New Hampshire's expansion plans, um, there's only a limited place you can expand up because of the vertical, you know, that you can't expand up because the vertical isn't there. So you're expanding out. Now, Waterville already had a really successful expansion with Wien Peak the last three, three four years. So that that's a real... Um, expansion that they did within their means and didn't overload the mountain and created great new terrain and some glades. So that's a really successful new new expansion. Um, and Sunapee had a small expansion five or seven years ago. Uh, Bretton Woods, it's hard to see how they would expand any further since they massive in acreage. They're bigger than some Vermont mountains, but just not that much, you know, vertical. Um, so I, th- I feel like Loon is the one where you're going to see you know, to the uh, to the west of the new eight pack, that's all they own a huge swath of that. And there's a name for that expansion plan, but I think that's going to happen. They they could use it uh, added added uh, uh, capacity. So yeah. And what about Ragged? And I, I correct myself. They're owned by Pacific Resorts Group, not uh, Pacific Group Resorts, not Mountain Capital Partners. Mountain Capital Partners owns. Uh, Arizona Snowball and uh, Purgatory in Colorado and a bunch of other places. But um, that those trails have been cut for a while. And I, I just don't know what's going to happen. Any insight into Ragged? Uh, I, I I don't know. The The only thing I know is there's a buzz about around Ragged and there has been for a few years. I mean, they had this underutilized six pack and the master ski race circuit stops there. It actually runs a downhill for old people there. Mm-hmm. Oh, cool. Uh, older people. It's um it's just a buzz about ragged. They're doing everything right. Uh they're they were under the radar until a couple of years ago, undiscovered. Now they kind of like the Berkshire East of New Hampshire, like laid back vibe, uh, good skiing, good uh, lift infrastructure. So I see room to to expand there. I mean you don't have like in southern New Hampshire with Pat's Peak and Crotchet, which are in the Worcester Drive area. You're not going to see a lot of, you know, much expansion there. And, um, you know, for, for Gunstock, going back to Gunstock, it's like it's it's one of the more inaccessible New Hampshire areas. I mean, you have to drive off of 93 about 15 miles through many stoplights and malls. And it's it, for such a beautiful area around Lake Winnipesaukee. It's a distinctly unattractive drive to. But it's just a little more cumbersome to get there. So I don't know how much they could handle, how much, you know, if they would get the market for it. So, but they do have a pretty fleshed out plan. 
Yeah, I mean, it would be it would be enormous if they were able to do it. Um, what, what about uh, what, what's your take on Loon's eight pack? That is a monster lifter dropping in. The thing looks beautiful. It's a huge investment. Do, do you think it's overkill or, or 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 is it is it welcome on a mountain as busy as Loon? It's welcome and I'm not as busy as Loon. It's like for some mountains, uh, excessive uphill capacity kills the mountain. For others, it it really releases a pressure point. And for Loon, ideally, I think it's going to redistribute a lot of traffic over that side of the mountain. And so uh, pretty sprawling uh, web of interconnected trails. So I think it's a real positive thing for Loon. And then they'll move that uh, the old Kank quad over to replace Seven Brothers and, and hopefully upgrade the gondola next. Yeah, the gondola looks like a Soyuz spacecraft. Yeah. Like the, the original Soviet uh, spacecraft. Right. Yeah, if you stand up there too fast, you'll get a concussion. It's uh, <laughs> And it's precariously perched seemingly. And it's, it's quite an experience. Yeah, it's an interesting place. You know, also outside of the North Conway orbit is Tenny, which was open for a couple years. Kind of a, a scary with a really checkered, interesting past. It closed again for COVID. I don't see any indication that it's planning to open for this year. What what, what are your thoughts on Tenny and, and if there's any chance that this place has a future? Well, it's a great hill. I mean, you can see it from 93. It's uh, I've not skied there, but I know a Japanese consortium bought it for a few years and used to dump ice there and they were skiing in the summer and they called it the Tenny Glacier. Um, it, it has a good local market in Plymouth and Plymouth State. The, the students who now flock to the train parks at Waterville and Loon um, so I, I, I wouldn't count Tenny out. I think that's a candidate to come back, perennial candidate to come back, like sort of like Wellback did. All right. How about the balsam? So this was a the northernmost ski area in New Hampshire. It was a little, a little guy. It was maybe the size of like a Pat's Peak. And Les Otten, who, who if you don't know, was behind the, the development of Sunday River and expansion of a bunch of other resorts. And by you, I mean listeners, not you, Sean. I know you're well aware of that. Uh, but but Les has a plan to transform the balsams into the largest ski area in the Northeast. What do you think? Deeply skeptical. Um, again, when he says the largest ski area in the Northeast, I mean, bigger than Killington and Sunday River. Um, maybe if you measure like acreage or parking lots. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, um, and, and you have to drive by, you know, 10 good ski areas to get there. Right. Number one. And from what I followed in the media, I mean, just the bureaucratic, the, the zoning hurdles are just almost insurmountable. And then and then you have the labor issue, you know, um, getting enough labor up there in a, in a, in a very uh, unpopulated uh, region. Yeah, and this has been it seems like it's the hotels open now, but it seems like we're still quite a ways from skiing. Yeah, I mean, is there really a market for it? Are people going to drive that? I mean, I don't know. I mean, it, it used to be great uh, yeah. when, it, when it was what it was. Did you ski up and there? They, I have not. No, but uh, I, I know people who made a point to go up there and they get a lot of snow. Um, and it was it was remote. It was a remote place, you know, um, kind of like maybe Saddleback. But I, I just, I don't know if there is a need for a huge, sprawling ski area in far you know northeast new hampshire 
All right. Well, next time you talk to Les, t- t- tell him that he's welcome on the podcast anytime for his sales pitch. Um, let's uh, let's move over to Vermont. I know you're a big Vermont guy. Uh, what what are your spots in Vermont? Well, I pretty much all over Southern Vermont. Mount Snow, Stratton, Magic is really one of my favorites. It's definitely the, the most challenging skiing in Southern Vermont. And even with, you know, uh, attendance up 400% since the uh, Jeff Hathaway group took over, this group of uh, Dartmouth University alumni investors have done a phenomenal job. They, they started, they brought Magic back from the dead and they pulled together their own money. They weren't leveraged. See, that's the secret behind magic is uh, they, they started with $2 million and they said, when this runs out, it runs out. So they're not beholden to anyone. Yeah. Uh, so with prudent planning and use of their, their money, they've, they've moved forward and tremendously expanded, uh, uh, you, you know, skiing there. Um, they've had a lot of hiccups, but that's because in, in getting the new, the summit lift, which they got from Stratton, but unlike some other places, they didn't rush it. They didn't, it's just when it happens, it happens. It looks like it's going to happen this year. I think it's the, the black lift, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yep. So magic is one of my favorites. Definitely on a powder day, drop everything, go, go to magic. Um, and and I skied, I've skied snow since I was a teenager. So I always try to go up there two or three times a year. Last year, I discovered Bolton Valley finally, uh, or a couple of years ago, and to do some skinning over there and on slope skiing. And that's... They've got a great future. They they have a dire need of new lift infrastructure, um, but uh, the way they've monetized their backcountry scene there is amazing. So I love yeah, all those special. places. The only place I haven't really hit a lot is Jay Peak and Smugs over the years, and then Mad River. I, I avoid Mad River. It's um, trails are too skinny. There's no you know negligible snowmaking. They have some. Does every run have to be a mogul run? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I know you love mogul store and I do too, but every run should not be a mogul run. Uh, and also, I, I'm I'm a little offended by their uh, their banning of excluding snowboarders. I mean, snowboarders are people too. Um, the days of snowboarders being you know awful, having not knowing what they're doing and ruining the the the, the, the slopes that's decades old. Thank you. And, and for Mad River to be such a alternative, quote unquote, and to ban, you know, some of the most avid uh, parts of our, you know, snow sports, I think it's just absurd. Yeah, it's it's hard to believe that that hasn't somehow been challenged in a legal way before. And I know that it has been, but I'm just surprised it hasn't been overturned. Well, it was challenged in Alta. And and they lost the snowboarders lost because the judge said it was the snowboarding is not a civil right, right. And and I I think that's true. It's not a civil right, mm-hmm. but it's it's in the context of skiing and snowboarding, it's morally correct to allow snowboarders. Yeah, it's I, I kind of look at it the same way as uh, as these high walk up lift ticket prices. I I, I understand the logic and I understand what they're saying. However, I, I think it becomes a story that ruins the good parts of your story. And, and I think it becomes the, the one thing that people focus on. Like when, when you walk up to Stowe and a lift ticket is $175 um, and, and you weren't pre- prepared for that, that's the story you're going to tell to everyone. 
And maybe you'll discover the Epic Pass, maybe you won't. Med River Glen seems a little bit similar to me in that um, it's it's this terrific mountain with some great terrain, and they're they're stuck in this 35-year-old mentality of skiers versus snowboarders. Like, that was a battle from the 90s. Right, that battle's long over. I mean, there, there was detente um, yeah. between yeah. these two groups a long time ago. A lot of yeah. it had to do with the rise of uh, free, free skiing. Yeah, I remember when terrain parks first came around, skiers weren't allowed in them. They were for, they were called snowboard parks. Yeah, there was a lot of animosity on both sides of that group, but they, they blended and they learned from each other. I mean, now you have split boarding, snowboarders who, you know, cut their boards in half and use them as individual skis on the way up. And ski design learned a lot from the early rocker designs of snowboards and rocker and, and shapes and, and, and ski uh, outerwear learned a lot from snowboarding style and vice versa. And then, you know, they started competing in the same venues and you have plenty of groups, you know, snowboarders and skiers together. So I think that that divide is over. And uh, Mad River is fighting an old battle. And, and there's just as many bad skiers as there are bad snowboarders. Uh, I mean, that's a, that's a fact. I, I uh, Last time I was up at Mad River was a couple of years ago. And um, it was a few days after a snowstorm and I was back in Paradise. And there were a lot of spaces between the moguls, because Paradise is it's it's a nasty piece of terrain. And it's very steep. And you could see where people were side slipping down and, and exposing down to the ice underneath. I'm like, well... That's not snowboarders, guys. <laughs> Someone on skis did that. Someone on yeah. skis ruined these troughs. So, especially with the wider skis. Uh, yeah. Now, with wider skis being the norm, I mean, some people's skis, and I have a couple pairs of these that are just as wide as a snowboard. You know, when you put yeah. them together. You know? Yeah. So, so as a guy who's been skiing Stowe for a long, long time, really curious on your take uh, since Vale has taken over Stowe, which we're going into our fifth season of Stowe under Vale management. Uh, what's your perception of how the scary has changed for better or worse since Vale took over? All right. Well, I'm going to go out on a limb and probably, you know, anger the, the purists. I think it's been greatly positive. Uh, it was, you know, they've taken something, something that was already great and made it even better. I mean, they, um, now it, it was um, AIG had built that, huge before Vail Resorts had built a great development at, at Spruce and put up the two-stage gondola there. So that was a great move. But um, I mean, here's how Stowe's improved it. Um, snowmaking and grooming and snowmaking just in the, in the, in the choke points, you know, where it's needed, yep. kind of like a Western resort. Yep. Um, you know, it's not, a, it's not boundary to boundary, like Southern Vermont areas, Yeah. but where you need it, uh, grooming where you need it. Mm -hmm. uh, they did not curtail the wild, the out of bounds ski culture. There's more out of bounds. There's tons of gladiated terrain in Stowe, and they've even created new spots. Mm -hmm. uh, what else have they done that's great? Well, they did need more parking. You can scoff at that, but they did. Mm -hmm. um, it was getting a little annoying that Vail hadn't was only expanding parking and not putting up some new lifts. And finally, they have announced this great new. Uh, uh, high speed quad to replace the old summit triple. Great six pack, Sean. A six pack, six pack. and you're not going to have to walk up to it. Well, I don't mind the walking up part. That part, <laughs> no, I like, I, the walk, I like the walking up part. It loosens you up. Um, and besides, oh, you man. should be starting at the gondola anyway. Um, start yeah, at yeah. the start of the gondola. So, um, <laughs> so the no, that lift is probably the most needed lift in the Northeast. 
to be to be replaced. I mean that 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 existing lift is a menace. Uh, they had a breakdown there a couple of years ago. It's cold and windy, like incredibly cold and windy. Um, so you put that above the Adidas triple? <laughs> yeah, because of the volume. Okay. The volume and uh, but I don't know. It just so. Oh, here's the other thing: Vail Resorts has brought to Stowe is, you know, customer service, mm-hmm. good t- professional training for employees. Um, you got a really cr- friendly crew who runs Stowe. And the big fear among locals and others is that they were going to, you know, the ski patrol were going to clamp down and be Nazis and nobody could cut rope and nobody could ski early season here and there. And as far as I can tell, that culture still exists. And the authorities, quote unquote, use a discretion to uh, to uh, stop skiers who are skiing, you know, places they shouldn't. Um, and and so still had a tremendous backcountry culture that Vail has uh not stamped out. Uh, so, you know, they've done trail widening and choke points, um, just a lot of little things that have kept the experience just really top notch there. Yeah, that's what uh, I hosted Bill Stritzler on the podcast last week, and he owns Smuggler's Notch right next door. And uh, he said everything he hears is that Vale knows how to run a ski area and they're, and they're crushing it at, at Stowe in a good way. I think so. I mean, you know, the the walk-up prices obviously are, are crazy, but no one buys walk-up. I mean, I don't know anyone who buys walk-up. And, um, and and I do agree with you that it's crazy that all, both Altera and Dell Resorts don't, they don't advertise the Epic Pass when the, when the day uh, ticket prices flash up. They don't say, hey, you can buy an Epic Pass too and be a lot cheaper. Right. What do you think of, of just while we're on the topic of Vail and Altera, just this enormous change in the landscape of New England skiing and how you access New England skiing over the past five years. Because if you rewind five years, Vail did not own anything in the region. Altera didn't exist. Um, Powdercore did own Killington and Intro West owned Stratton, but that was about it. So fast forward now, you have seven New England mountains on the Epic Pass. You have seven New England mountains on the Icon Pass. And then you have the Indy Pass with another dozen. And most of the big mountains in the region are on those. How do you think those big passes have changed things for better or worse? Well, the Indy Pass has just been a phenomenon. I mean, that's really clearly for the better. Um, now, there's this debate among, you know, there's there's critics fighting the big resorts. But so I, I see it, though, as what the, these mega passes is. I see it from a more populist perspective. Like I think you did too, for the most part, like anything that makes skiing cheaper is better mm-hmm. for us. Yeah. Okay. Now, where does it tend to sometimes create uh, unwanted impacts like on communities like Jackson Hole or maybe Stowe or maybe uh, Vale, where maybe locals are getting a little priced out because uh, real estate's going up or maybe it's more crowded on the weekend than it would normally be. Okay, but I feel like those are problems that can be uh, ameliorated. I mean, Mount Snow just converted a big old hotel on Snow Snow Lake Lodge, I think, to um, uh, employee housing. So the answer is more employee housing. Um, Aspen has done it. Uh, Jackson Hole starting to do it. So it's on them to do that, I think. Um, but for for us, for the average family and the average avid skier, it's been it's been a revolution. 
Yeah, and I, I think they're getting starting to cope with the fact that that these passes are here to stay and their popularity is going to continue to increase. Last week, Vail announced a plan to limit ticket sales on peak holidays this year. And it's actually the whole February break week, MLK, and the whole Christmas week. Uh, they're going to have better flow in their lift lines. So what did you think of their plan last week? Do you think it'll be enough? Obviously, they're also putting in a lot of new lifts. Mount Snow is going to get another six-pack. They got that giant project at Okemo this year that's going to uh, it's going to put in a new six pack and and move their forward to replace a fixed grip triple. Um, they have all those projects in New Hampshire. What do you think of everything they're doing? I, I, I know it's it's going to take a little while, but do you think they're doing it? Do you think they're doing this in with the best intentions and, and honestly trying to create a better ski experience? Yeah, I don't see a problem with limiting uh, sales during the peak periods. Um, it, I just think that's that's a no brainer. Why not? I mean, Magic limits sales. Wachusett uh, cut off uh, season pass sales in the early fall. Yep. Um, and they have only a certain amount of day tickets. Uh, you know, I think it's catching on the idea of limiting uh, uh, pass sales. All right, let's let's go to the other side of that spectrum, Hermitage Club. I know, I know you have some thoughts on Hermitage Club. I do, and I well, I agree with you that. We as skiers should care about the success of a private ski club, which is pretty exclusive. It's a, something like $80,000 to join and then 6000 a year. I don't know, some high price um, because it preserves, a, you know, an iconic mountain and it keeps the sport of skiing going and it, it just contributes to the overall ski culture. Uh, the, the trade group Ski Vermont has, uh, re, you know, taken the Hermitage club back into its uh, embraces and it, it is a business even though it's a private club it's good for the economy in southern vermont um it's great for the economy in southern vermont it's uh but most importantly if you ever get a chance to ski there whether as a guest or whenever you get a chance uh, it's hard to get there now it used to be pretty easy to get guest passes there under the old regime but now it's um, run by the by the owners uh, with the help of uh, John Schaefer's group and Bill Banyan, they hired a great general manager. It's just great skiing. I mean, the Witches area is one of the most entrancing uh, subzones in, in New England skiing. Um, uh, and it's just really, really fun skiing. Yeah. Do, do you think that, do you think that they've fixed the business model this time and that this will be more sustainable because the old, the old regime really, had his hands in everything and they owned all the, these ancillary businesses. And what Bill told me last year on the podcast was, look, we sold anything they didn't have to do with the skiing. So we're, we're just focused on the skiing. Let's provide great skiing. Do you think that's the right focus? And do you think Hermitage Club is sustainable over the long term? I totally think that's the right focus. The divest of real estate. Um, no, they don't own anything off of the mountain. They also, uh, you know, slim down there, all the luxury, you know, uh, perks at the mountain, and, you know, getting rid of the lavish lunches and stuff like that, turning it back into a skier's mountain, um, running it with a pretty much a skeleton management crew of six. Uh, so, you know, and just putting the work into maintaining that beautiful uh, bubble six pack to the top. Um, and so, 
and they, they have good grooming now. They, they, they do have a structural problem with their snowmaking. The pumping system is yet to be uh, modernized, um, even though they have, you know, high-tech uh, guns. But I, I think they're on the right track. You know, it's run by the members who care. Uh, they don't have grandiose dreams anymore. And it's, uh, it's a great compliment to the uh, Deerfield Valley uh, ski community. All right, let's uh, let's jump over to Maine here. I want to talk. I just want to get your take real quick. So Boyne, which already owned Sugarloaf, Sunday River, and Loon in New England, plus six more resorts across the continent, recently bought Shawnee Peak. What do you think about that? Well, there were some people who complained about that, like you know, uh, possibly as a monopolistic practice, or you know, kind of um, you know, now they now Boyne owns the three big uh, three of the four biggest ski areas in Maine. Um, but where, like, where's the harm? Yeah. I, I, I don't see the harm. I mean, unless you can say that they're going to do uh, price fixing with lift tickets. Um, I don't think so. I think you, you I think they'll just add uh, Shawnee to the uh, uh, Northeast Pass. And I agree. Make it an even better deal for, for uh, what our day ticket prices are probably going to go up. Um, and so maybe they're going to try to convert the Portland crowd that goes to Shawnee to the New England pass. So whereas they used to rely on the occasional day ticket and uh, multi-day packs because a lot of, but so I think they may go that route and some, some people might be a little pissed off, uh, but that place needs uh, investments in lifts, uh, investments in snowmaking and an expanded lodge. Um, yeah. But it's got, it's just a tremendous uh, structure that's in place, ready to be improved. And Boyne is is good company. They're eager to do it. They've done it with a lot of other mountains, improved them a lot. And what are the Stuart? Are they the the third biggest ski company in the U.S. or is Powder? They are. They're the third biggest. Yeah, and they're they're a good company. And when they and they have a good relationship with Altera, you know, they're an affiliate. You know, they're kind of a feeder to Altera and. You know, that can't hurt. I Incidentally, I, I've always, I've been expecting, you know, Sh- Sugarbush Sunny River to be sold to Altera over the years, but now I'm pretty much convinced that Boyne's not going to do that. That Boyne won't uh, sell Sunny River? Or, yeah, or Sugarloaf or Loon. Oh, no, I, I think Boyne's in this for the long haul. I, I, I think they they really like New England as a market. Yeah, they, I think they do. And they're a great ski family and they, they're proud of their heritage and, uh, they have sold a few places to Altera. Uh, well, they sold uh, Crystal Mountain in Washington. Yeah, that was that was a little bit of a, a family split up of the business, though, because because another one of the Kirchers bought it and then sold it to Altera. True, that is true. Um, but uh, no, Boyne's a good company, and uh, Shawnee Peak is, is. If you haven't skied there, people out there, you just gotta go. It's it's just a great terrain, great multiple fall lines. Great tree skiing, long runs, uh, great view of Mount Washington. It's just outside of North Conway, too. It's not far. It's like 20 minutes, half hour. Yeah, I, I definitely want to get up there th- this year. It's uh, Stephen Kirscher did tell me, the Boyne CEO, that they are committing to to offering the Shawnee Pass. That doesn't mean that Shawnee won't join the New England Pass uh, or the Icon Pass, but they will still offer a season pass to just Shawnee. I also think, you know, and I'm, I'm one of the people who wrote about possible competitive concerns, but, but I don't, I think it's, I think you have to ask the question, 
But I think New England, it, it's not really useful to think about things state by state. Like, yeah, they own three of the biggest four in Maine, but that's not a big state, right? And there's something like 80 or 90, maybe more ski areas in New England. So I, I think you have to try, you would have to try pretty hard to get a monopoly on that market. Like Vail owns seven and they're, that's not even 10% of them. That's true. Although sometimes when you think of Vermont, you think Vail's pretty much in charge of, of Vermont nowadays, except for Killington and uh, Sugarbush. But yeah, when you put it that way, that's that's a good way to look at it. It's it's They just happen to be in Maine. And plus, they have a very strong competitor now, Saddleback, coming back. They do. What do you think about that? I was so stoked about that. Well, I liked it. I loved your... Uh, you went there last year for their opening day. I thought that was yep. phenomenal. Um and you and your uh, podcast interview with the with the head of the group that runs it, I think they've got the right idea. It's like it's like the group that bought uh, Bosquet in Western Mass, which is mm-hmm. integrating the ski area really closely into the community in terms of yep. the economy, job development, um, steward stewardship of natural resources. Uh, yep. I, I love that that sort of socially conscious for profit model. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really good. Yeah, I love it. And, and Andy Shepard, who's the GM there, uh, he, he's this is he's he's like messianic about bringing this place back. And he he's the one who brought back Black Mountain to Maine and and made that into a a viable enterprise. So I I have I have full confidence that they'll find a way to get this done. Yeah, and same thing with Bosquet, and um, and they're looking at, at looking at Esquire as a, a part of a larger community and as part of. Uh, helping to define the outdoor culture and the economy of the community and not strictly out for, you know, taking profits and repatriating them somewhere else. Yeah. How impressive is the gut renovation of Busquet? I, I was there two years ago and that place felt like it was falling apart. Like I was like, okay, this is going to be the next lost ski area. And I, I talked to Kevin McMillan, the GM over there a couple of weeks ago, and, and they've just gut renovated that place. Like they've replaced all the snowmaking, uh, they replaced the yellow chair. They tore out one of the other chairs. They're going to replace the blue chair. They moved the terrain part. They're just making moves. It's incredible. It's incredible. I mean, when I was there last year, they the the new summer lift wasn't open completely just yet. But the old lodge was dysfunctional. Would be would be understanding it. Um, <laughs> um, I will say though that they have the best Bloody Mary in ski country at the, oh. at the bar. Um, I don't know what they've done with the bar, if they've renovated it, but uh, um, yeah, it needed so much work and it, it was just crazy. It's a great hill. That's another one that skis bigger than it is. Um, and it's in a really good market. Um, Pittsfield is is a renaissance city and in, in Western Mass. And, you know, you've, even before COVID, the Brookshires were, you know, huge, you know, uh, summer and winter, summer destination. But now becoming more of a winter destination with uh, Catamount coming back, Butternut being successful. And Busquet is going to have, you know, the local market and the Berkshire crowd, the New York Berkshire crowd. We'll find it more palatable to ski there now. All right, Sean. Well, I I could talk skiing all day with you. I I don't know if we make this thing two hours, if many people are going to listen to it, though. So so we should should, uh, wrap it up. Uh, Curious, I I know you like to take the the big Western trips. What What do you got on the docket this year? Well, uh, thinking about a Mount Hood visit in uh, in the late spring. Um, Very nice. Uh, Timberline, uh, a Vail visit, and nice. uh, 
to Vail, probably my favorite place in Colorado, and uh, and some kind of a backcountry excursion to perhaps the Chick Chocks in northern Quebec. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, nice. Nice. Yeah, That's legendary up there. No lifts up there, by the way. Yeah. Now, now, when you go to Vail, how much time do you spend at Vail? How much time do you spend at Beaver Creek? Almost all at Vail. I mean, Beaver Creek just for a diversion. Uh, yeah. see the back bowls, you know, you got to Vail for the back bowls. Yeah. I love Beaver Creek, man. I, 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 I think it's, it's underrated. I think it's overlooked by Vail. Oh, no, it is. It's great groomers uh beaver creek i mean it's like an eastern mountain on steroids um it reminds me i I skied in this place in germany garmisch it reminds me kind of a garmisch because you're skiing in the trees a lot you know not above tree line and it's just i don't know it's just a very incredible grooming Uh, but veil is veil you 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 want to get lost in the back rolls yeah it's uh it, it's a it's a phenomenal place, and I haven't been to Vail Mountain in a while, so I need to fix that. All right, all right, Sean. Well, I I cannot thank you enough for your time. This was a lot of fun. Uh, we're gonna have to maybe make this an annual thing. Just talk about skiing when your column comes out. So I, I really look forward to your first one, and um, I hope you have a great season. Hopefully, we can link up and make some turns at some point. Thanks, Stuart. Look forward to skiing with you and uh, listening to your podcast, especially the Wachusett one coming up. That's Sean Sutner, snow sports columnist for the Worcester Telegram and Gazette and Telegram.com. I really enjoyed that one. I get feedback once in a while that I need to make the podcast shorter, and that's valid to some degree. But my point of view is, if you like talking about this stuff, you can listen to people talk about it all day long. And how good is Sutner? That guy knows his stuff. He's not just some knucklehead on Facebook. This is a guy who's lived this scene for a very long time. So, thank you very much for that, Sean. I'm serious about doing that every year. Let's make sure we book that next Thanksgiving week. And thank you all for listening. You are going to hear from Wachusett President Jeff Crowley next week. Then a big one. Steamboat President and COO Rob Perlman will join me. And I have Black Mountain of Maine lined up after that. Remember to subscribe to the free Storm Skiing newsletter at stormskiing.com to get those podcasts as soon as they're live. Also follow along with the storm on Twitter or Instagram at Stormski Journal. You can also find the storm on Facebook. Thank you all for listening. Stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I'll talk to you again very soon. The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.